Hello, hello. <laughs> I learned my lesson. I'm Savannah. I'm Alicia. And this is Burden of Proof. I actually think this episode comes out before the episode that we're talking about th- that we just referenced. Oh, it does. In our little intro bit. Well, next week you'll understand what we're talking about. Next week you'll hear Savannah steal one of RuPaul's taglines. Listen here. Didn't mean to. <laughs> I thought I was being Tim Gunn, okay? Even still. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think Tim Gunn would sue me. True. Make it work. RuPaul will just probably just joke about suing yeah. you. Yeah. Before you start, I saw a TikTok earlier, and this is for the Gen Zers, that it was a clip of people laughing. I think it's from Community. And it said, me and my best friend when we're running from serial killers, but we get caught because we stop to laugh at the way they run. <laughs> <laughs> and that is very much accurate. Yeah. I would also get caught because I'm not a very fast runner. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't run for But crap. I'd try. I'd put up a fight. Do I look like I'm built to run? <laughs> I am built to feed you fried chicken and tell you, well, Darwin, you're looking so good. You need, you need some more meat on your bones. That's what I'm built to do. Oh, uh, that's funny. <laughs> you also grew up in the South, so. Oh, yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. I'm more of a workhorse. Slow and steady. <laughs> You're built to run a farm. <laughs> I am. All my ancestors were farmers. Oh, that makes sense then. Yeah. That's how I work. My yeah. Hu- my husband is the complete opposite. He goes fast and hard and then he like takes breaks. Yeah. Does and, he? I'll, and I'll keep. Not like that, you pervert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It was right there. I know. I walked into it again. <laughs> Always do. Oh, that's so funny. Anyway, anyway, I'm thinking of home renovation projects. Yes, yes. I knew what you meant. Where I keep plugging along, but I'm slower than him. Yeah. So sometimes it feels unfair because we'll get the same amount of work done. And he's, yeah, you know, the rabbit taking a nap after he did it really yeah. fast. No, I get that, though. And I am slow and steady. But you I- win the race. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Well, I, I could I could manage the farm. <laughs> You'd be a good be a good could farm do manager. Good farm work. Anyway, what are we talking about today? <laughs> anyway, I might cut some of that out. <laughs> I figured you would. We'll see. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Yeah. Today is the case of Heather Grossman. Oh. Do you know Heather Grossman? It sounds really familiar. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I might remember as you start talking. It's not your typical stabby stab murder murder case. Okay, it's more like attempted murder case. Okay, and Heather is at the center of it, as in the victim. Oh, okay. (laughs) But she has since, which I'll get into at the end. She has done a lot of advocacy afterwards. Nice. So that's why I say, have you heard of Heather Grossman? And actually doing this case kind of comes at a perfect time from what I can tell because she's recently done some more interviews and stuff to bring attention to her particular needs. Her her life circumstances have sort of changed. And so, yeah, we'll get into that at the end, though. So, All right. I don't have a lot of background on the people involved, so we're just going to start at the beginning of her first relationship, okay? Okay. So Heather Stevens was working as an attendant when she met Ron Samuels on a flight. 
despite him being 17 years her senior and Heather showing no interest in him, Ron decided, I must have her. Yeah. According to Heather, Ron got her phone number from an agent and was very persistent. Today, I'm sure he would end up in a viral TikTok video. Oh. For such behavior. Like, you know what kind of video I'm talking about. Like, just, she doesn't say that he was very pushy and arrogant when they met, but she makes it clear, like, it was not love at first sight. Oh. She didn't want to date him. She didn't want, but he, if you caught that, like, he got her phone number from someone else. Yeah. And then started calling her and pursuing her. So... See, in, in today's day and age, like, I have been very lucky. I met my fiance in high school. We've been dating for quite some time now, almost like five and a half years. But I know my friends who do date, if you did that, stalker, creeper, nope, not yep. happening. You would never, ever in a million years get yes. a shot, ever. That's a no from our generation. You either right. add me on Instagram and slide in my DMs like a man. <laughs> Or you talk to me, but you don't come up through, like, friends and stuff. And, like, I know that that used to be a thing. Yes. Actually, this started in the 1980s. And, unfortunately, it was a a very different time. Yeah. And women, I mean, this is even true to some degree of my generation. Like, I was a kid in the 80s. But even in my generation, like, honestly, we were always sort of, I don't want to use the term brainwashed. But for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. you're brainwashed to believe that that kind of persistence in a man is romantic. And like, yeah, he only has eyes for you. That's like, why wouldn't you give him a chance? Uh, Because he's a freaking stalker. That's why. Because what do you mean (laughs) you're watching me go to my car? That's weird. Don't do that. I mean, I don't know that he did that. But I know I'm just. But yeah, it's just it's it's a red flag. And I think that's what's great about especially like younger millennials and Gen Zs, is that they have caught on mm-hmm. to the fact that this is a red flag. Well, it's a red flag someone. and believing that that is okay in any sense leads to like, you know, forgiving of other controlling and abusive behavior. Oh, no. I don't like that face she's making when I said that. So, carrying on with Ron and Heather's story. Lord. After some time... Ron's persistence paid off, and he swept Heather off her feet with attention, affection, and a lavish lifestyle. The couple eventually got married and settled down in Florida. Heather maintains that Ron was loving and even spoiled her until the birth of their first son, Ronald Jr. Okay. It was then that Ron became controlling Constantly demanding to know where Heather was at all times and getting angry when she missed his phone calls. That's an interesting trigger for the son being born to... That's interesting. Oh, no. She's being quiet. I don't know the exact statistics, but while there's a lot of cases of men becoming abusive, like, you know, either furthered in the dating relationship or... Once they move in together Mm -hmm. or once they're married, I would venture to say that that's not an uncommon thing. Interesting. 
because I do know from being a wife and a mother myself, Mm -hmm. I got very lucky. My husband's case of that weird jealousy business Mm -hmm. that a lot of men go through with their first child Mm -hmm. was very mild to say the least like he he, but a lot of men even if they're not abusive feel like well now all her attention is on the baby Mm. and i don't get the attention that i need see and that is like kind of strange and you know from from an outsider looking in yeah you're like yeah it's a baby (laughs) exactly and what little time she has left She's tired. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and I, it, like, part of me is wondering, too, if he he's thinking, oh, well, now I don't have to try and hide my controllingness because she's locked in. She's locked in. We with, got a baby uh, With now. a kid. Yeah. That could be, too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Despite Ron's behavior, though, the couple went on to have a set of twins. Jo- okay. Joe and Lauren. And I don't know exactly um, the age difference, but I would say based on the pictures of them as kids as well as mm-hmm. adults, I would say there's probably only a couple years between okay. the eldest and the twins. In any case, Heather says that Ron's behavior then escalated into violence and he would do things like throw her against the walls and verbally abuse her. She claims that the breaking point was when he pointed a gun at her head and told her, quote, if you leave, I'm going to kill you. I will make your life miserable. Um, well, yeah, I think that's a good breaking point. Mm-hmm. So in the early 90s, Heather found the courage to leave, and unsurprisingly, he made her life miserable. Oh, yeah. It's almost like he said that. Yeah. Uh, the divorce was very ugly and bitter. And, of course, there was a terrible and drawn-out custody battle that followed. Of course. Even after custody was established and child support ordered by the court, Ron did everything he could to make every step of it difficult. He refused to pay the ordered $3,000 a month support, Instead, choosing to spend more than $250,000 in legal fees on fighting the court's decision. Holy crap. Now, despite her life being made so difficult and all the trauma and drama of Ron Samuels, Heather actually met somebody new. Oh, okay. John Grossman. John was everything that Ron was not. Oh, the wealthy himself and the son of a former Minnesota Vikings owner. So they had money. Yeah. Money, money. Money, money. Ron had money, money too. Yeah. But he liked to pretend like he didn't. What's Heather doing? She's attracting all these money, money men. Yeah. Um, Well, she's pretty. She's blonde and pretty and a flight attendant and... Oh, flight. Okay, yeah. so she she's meeting men in business class. Um, well, I actually don't know that she went back to. I'm assuming she stopped being a flight attendant when she married Ron. Oh, I don't know if she went back to it, but she she did work. I know that when her and John oh. are together, she was working in like an office. I know. Well, that. even then, like when I say that, I really mean like obviously if she's married or was married to somebody, like that, those are the circles you run in. You know. Yes. Yeah. So John, unlike Ron, was humble, kind, 
and he cared greatly for Heather and even the kids. When Heather and John got married, Ron continued to make life as difficult as possible for everyone. Despite being worth more than $30 million, he continued to claim he couldn't afford child support. Wham! Do you need a ambulance? He continuously fought with both Heather and John, even making accusations that they were abusing the children. He literally took his six-year-old son, Ronnie Jr., to the police station and coerced Ronnie to make false allegations of abuse. That's horrible. That poor boy. At what I assume was their final appearance in front of the family court judge, because Ron was $50,000 behind in child support, Heather explained that she and John were regularly getting death threats and that she feared for their safety. Yeah. The judge warned Ron that he would be in contempt of court should he continue to ignore the support order. And then he ordered Ron to pay around $18,000 by October 14th, 1997, in an attempt to catch up. Then he took it a step further and suspended Ron's visitation for six months with the kids. All right. So Ron was mad. Mm-hmm. Like, mad, mad. Unfortunately, her fears for their safety turned into reality on the very day that that $18,000 was due. Oh, October gosh. 14th, 1997. That morning, John suggested that he and Heather have a lunch date. Okay. As John picked her up from the office, mm-hmm. they start heading to lunch. He stopped at a traffic light to a very busy intersection. You know what Florida intersections are like. This actually took place in Boca Raton. Okay, I've been to Boca. I know what that looks like. But, you know, generally speaking, at any of the medium to bigger cities in Florida, this was like um, US 1 that they're Mm -hmm. on. So it was, I'm assuming, equivalent to like our US 41. It is, yeah. So you've got at least, you've got multiple lanes. Mm -hmm. It's not just like a little three-lane Turn lane, straight, turn lane. You're looking at like a six-lane road. Okay. So lots of cars around. Mm -hmm. They stop in one of the lanes to the right. Okay. Heather bent down to get something out of her briefcase. And suddenly, two shots were fired from a car that was in the lane next to them, but to their rear Okay. So the this this the shooter was in the left one of the left lanes just next to mm-hmm. them, and like one car or behind them. Behind them. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, I wasn't sure how to no you did to lay that out. I'm with you <laughs> exactly. Well, there were two shots fired. Bang bang. The first shot went through the back window, hitting Heather in the back of the neck oh. as she sat up from reaching for her briefcase. Yeah. The second hit John, but it just grazed his chin. Oh, my gosh. Okay, good. Of course, several witnesses saw the gun come out of the back window of what was a green Ford Thunderbird. Many of them ducked, thinking it was just like a drive-by kind yeah. of shooting. and that they It wasn't re- targeted, yeah. yes. They didn't realize there was a target. Once the Grossmans were shot... 
the light turned green, and that vehicle was seen speeding away from the scene. But one witness did manage to get a good look at the license plate. Hell yeah. Who's our hero? Do we know? I don't know. Aww. And all my sources. Well, but you know what? Yeah. They sleep good at night. Yes. So Heather is slumped forward in the car with a golf ball size hole <gasps> in the back of her neck. Like <gasps> right where. Oh, yeah. my God. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to get grotesque. <clears throat> John is conscious and, you know, yes. he just got grazed. I mean, he's got an injury to his chin, but he's okay. He jumps out of the car yelling for help. Yeah. Well, the witness that got the license plate called 911 to report the shooting. When the first responders arrived, they found Heather without a pulse. But oh my gosh. they were able to resuscitate her in the ambulance. Good. I act like I didn't know she lived, but I'm still like, I'm so invested. <laughs> it's a, Well, yeah, but it's a, like hearing where she got hit is like it's terrifying. What? How did you survive that? Heather's memory of the incident is just that she went to sit up and she felt like something hit her in the back of her neck. Okay. It but was then a bullet. She, yeah. But I don't know about anybody else, but I've always wondered how painful is getting shot. Oh, I've always thought and about I, that. And I think that it totally depends. I mean, just with what little medical knowledge I have, I think that it depends on where you get hit. And in yeah. her case, because she was hit right in her spinal column, hitting Nerves. her whole spinal cord. Yeah. It actually probably didn't hurt. She just felt the hit and then it severed. It immediately severed those nerves. So I guess you're. No, I know what you're talking about. Fortunate in that sense that it, if she had died, it would have been over super fast. And she didn't really, like, she doesn't talk about feeling any pain. She just felt something hit her. And then she said that she could quickly feel her body sort of shutting down. That's it. Yeah. And that she was like trying to call out for help and she couldn't. She couldn't mm-hmm. talk. Well, they managed to resuscitate her and she was stable, but she actually passed out again and did not wake up for two or three days. Now, whether they put her they like a medical coma or she just was, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. But this is where I always start to cry. I'll try not to cry. Okay. I literally practiced this part so that I wouldn't cry. Oh, okay. Because as a mom, I thought, oh my God, that's exactly what I would do. Yeah. She says that her very first thought when she woke up in the hospital, not knowing that two or three days had passed, was the kids need picked up from school. Did somebody pick up the kids? Stop. They don't want to be forgotten in school. My mom heart. Yeah. I can't. So, unfortunately, once she was awake, she quickly realized that she couldn't ask if somebody picked them up from school because she still couldn't talk. Mm. The shot to her neck had left her not only unable to talk, but a quadriplegic. Oh, my gosh. So At this point, she's in the hospital. She wakes up. She doesn't even really know what's happened so far. Oh, my gosh. And she can't talk and she can't move anything on her body at all. 
The hospital staff asked her to blink her eyes to communicate yes or no to simple questions. Okay. John, of course, had been able to talk to investigators, Mm -hmm. explain what he experienced. There were several witnesses on the scene. Mm -hmm. So the investigators basically had two leads. Okay. One, the license plate number. And two, John, at that point, John, and eventually Heather's insistence that Ron Samuels was the only person who would want them dead. I mean, it feels like the obvious choice. Yes. Well, when detectives run the plate, they found that the Ford Thunderbird belonged to an insurance agent by the name of Hugh Estes. Okay. They learned that Hugh had a nasty drug addiction, causing him to spend an upwards of $1,000 a week on crack cocaine. That's a lot. Oh. So, needless to say, Hugh's having some financial woes. I was going to (laughs) say, where are you getting $1,000 a week, buddy? I mean, you can make good money as an insurance agent, but... Or as a hitman. I don't think you're making that much money. No. To pay for your regular bills and And keep up your crack addiction. Well, as the detectives run through, you know, inquiries, interviews, etc., they connect Hugh to several shady characters who, as it turned out, did, in fact, conspire to kill Heather and John Grossman. Mm-hmm. The individuals included Hugh, Hugh's drug dealer, Eddie Stafford, otherwise known as Slim, a man that went by just T, who regularly associated with Slim. Okay. Okay. There's not much that I can say about T because he kind of isn't in the end of the story Mm -hmm. you'll see why in a minute so i'm not really going to talk much about him but there was another guy involved Mm -hmm. that i think started introducing people to people basically Mm -hmm. when they're looking for people to do this roger runyon a former military marksman with a drug addiction and finally there's one guy that doesn't quite fit jeffrey pollock a son of a wealthy businessman with no drug addiction hmm. and no strong connections to the street or c- criminal activity. To the street. That's what they kept saying in the trial. Yeah. But one thing all these men did have in common was a desperation for money. One thing some of these men had in common was a relationship with none other than Ron, Ron Samuels. Samuels. Hugh Estes had known Ron since the 1970s, having worked with him on several insurance deals Mm -hmm. or at the same agency or something like that, and socialized with him on and off, reconnecting just months before the shooting. Jeffrey Pollock's father was friends with Ron Samuels, and while down on his luck, Jeffrey took odd jobs for Ron, basically... In exchange, I think he was probably paying him under the table, mm-hmm. kind of, and and the things that he explained that he did were kind of stupid. So it was almost as if Ron was like finding work for him just to give him money, just to kind yeah. of like groom him into this whole mess. Oh, Does that make sense? Yeah. Unfortunately, the detective's case against Ron though was very weak. 
because they literally had nothing but a bunch of crackheads and then this one guy that doesn't really have a criminal record but like Mm -hmm. turns out he wasn't actually at the scene anyway so knowing the conspirators does not prove beyond a reasonable doubt yeah that ron was the ringleader so detectives discuss the options with heather and john they either prosecute the men who carried out the shooting or they offer those men a deal, and I think in some of those cases it was immunity, to get all of the testimonies against Ron. Yeah. So as difficult as it was to let them walk free, Heather knew that Ron was really the one that needed to be locked up in order for her and her family to be safe. Yeah, because if she doesn't, then it's just gonna, he's just going to find other people to do it. Yes. So once the deal was made and the DA felt they had everything to bring a case against him, it was time to move for an indictment. And this was about nine or ten months after the actual shooting. There was just one problem. Ron had flown to Mexico using a fake passport in an attempt to smuggle cocaine. He was busted with six kilos of it in the trunk of a car. Holy moly. And arrested. And the Mexican authorities said, you will have to wait your turn. Yeah. And wait they did. Because Ron spent the next eight years (gasps) in a Mexican prison. Oh my gosh. I mean, hey, he's in jail. And you would think that, right? But Heather does say in an interview that during those eight years, they still worried because, you know, I mean, the Mexican, you hear stuff about. Oh, they were worried about him, like, hiring somebody to come. They were worried about him using his money to pay someone off to get out of prison quietly. Yeah. And, like, getting away and then coming back to the U.S. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, but he didn't managed to do that so he was in mexico while he was in mexico though life for heather and ron heather and ron sorry it's hard that their names rhyme yeah heather and john (laughs) life for heather and john moved on but unlike anything they could possibly imagine oh yeah heather did regain her ability to speak but would forever be quadriplegic and need round-the-clock care. Mm -hmm. Her medical bills were astronomical, putting financial strain on her, actually, to this day. And unfortunately, the toll it took on John and their marriage must have been more than he could handle. Yeah, I was going to ask. he had always been a super swell guy from Mm -hmm. everybody's interviews and testimony. But... Heather and her now adult children say that the previously kind and loving John had become abusive in the years awaiting Ron's trial. John allegedly would dismiss nurses, often claiming, oh, I'll take over. It's fine. Mm -hmm. You can go home. And then he would verbally and physically abuse her, including stabbing her with forks. Ugh. And her one son told reporters in an interview that John even went so far as to go out into the yard and get dog poop and go in and throw it on Heather or at her when he was 
having an outburst of anger. I don't even know what to say to, the, to that. That's that's yes, ridiculous. So once again, Heather was faced with trying to get away from abuse. And that time she had the added strain of like she physically cannot leave. Like, yeah, she, she can't just like. She has needs, like care. a whole team of people to help her get out of this situation. Well, she managed to leave and they divorced in 2004. John passed away the very following year in 2005 from a heart attack. Depending on how you look at that, there was no indication that, like, he's not wrong. Like, I, he didn't continue to try and be difficult and abusive after the fact. I think that literally it was just this whole situation brought out the absolute worst in him, pushed him over the edge. That's not to excuse that behavior because, like, no, that's insane. That's, that's not just like getting frustrated and leaving and you know that's Yeah, it makes you wonder like why didn't you just leave? Yeah. Cuz like it's a very different situation than you ever thought you'd have to deal with with your wife. Yeah. So but I'm sure there's that like then pe- then I look like a jerk because I'm leaving my poor quadriplegic wife. Well, but yeah. like you look like a bigger jerk being abusive, friend. So yeah. just leave. That was 2005 that John passed away, and it would be in 2006 that Ron finally faced the charges for attempted murder, which also meant that Heather had to face Ron for the first time in almost 10 years. So, Wow. Scary. That's scary. It's terrifying. And actually, their kids as well. I don't know about their, the twins, but their eldest son testified in the mm. trial as well. Okay. He was 17 at the time. And all of the kids, at some point, I don't know if John Grossman officially adopted them mm-hmm. or if they just chose to change their names to Grossman, but okay. they all go by Grossman now. Okay. Or had, like, at some point when Ron was down in Mexico, they did that because at the trial, when he testified, he stated that his last name was Grossman. Mm-hmm. But he still called John his stepdad, not like adopted dad. He yeah. said Ron Samuels is my biological father. And then when asked about John Grossman, he said, well, he's my stepdad. So, mm-hmm. I-, I mean, I don't blame them if they just changed their name to Grossman because who would want to keep <laughs> the, the name of the guy who tried to kill your mom? Yeah. So. The state charged Ron with two counts of attempted first-degree murder with a firearm, one count of shooting into an occupied vehicle, four counts of solicitation to commit first-degree murder, one count of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and one count of committing a felony causing bodily injury. While there was some physical evidence corroborating testimony that Ron was illegally moving money to the Cayman Islands and that he had been planning to flee to Venezuela, the bulk of the state's case relied upon the testimonies of Hugh Estes, Eddie Stafford, Roger Runyon, and Jeffrey Pollock. Mm-hmm. So basically, piecing together testimonies, it kind of went something like this. Initially, Ron attempted to get Jeffrey Pollock to just harm or assault Heather. 
To well, what? Like to scare her? Yes. To to scare her into what a I don't know what coward. he was trying. I I think he was trying to scare her into either giving up custody of the kids because he continued to try and get full custody. Yeah, or because all just... he had was visitation. So it was either to get custody of the kids or it was sign off on and just like say you don't want the money so that yeah. I don't have to pay so much and. Child support. support. I'm not a hundred percent clear on that, but I'm sure it had it was one of those things. Well, while Jeffrey cooperated to an extent, whenever it came down to action, he would avoid and or neglect to coordinate anything. He told Ron, "Oh yeah, I found somebody that'll do it." Yeah, but, but he then didn't. he wouldn't give that person her address. Or, yeah, or like tell them where she would be yeah. or whatever. Ron then introduced Jeffrey to Hugh Estes and Slim, or Eddie Stafford, at a meeting where the men came to an agreement to kill Heather. Jeffrey acted as a coordinator, showing Hugh and Slim where Heather lived and worked, but he claimed he only did so after basically being badgered by Ron. Ron told Hugh that he could kill Heather himself or find someone else to do it. So, Hugh and Eddie found the former marksman, Roger Runyon, through other individuals from the streets. As they, from the streets. As they kept saying in the, in the courtroom. Which I think that that's where the person that went by T came into play. Mm-hmm. I think that somehow there's some connection there. Now, Eddie drove Hugh's car with Roger in the back, and they followed John and Heather that day from Heather's office. They truly just made the one grave error. They forgot to change the license plate. Supposedly, Roger was the one who was supposed to swap out license plates to prevent an easy identification. Yeah. And he simply forgot, which is why you don't hire crackheads to do <laughs> yeah. jobs I like mean- this. Jeffrey's final part in the plan was to act as an alibi for Ron. Ron called his dad and said, hey, I need him to run some errands for me today. Mm -hmm. I need him to drive me around. So that's what they did. All right. Now the trial was just about as dramatic as you would expect. Yeah. Because it's Ron. Yeah, I mean, the man, he's, he's got a flair for it. He received several warnings from the judge for outbursts, but the final and biggest one was when the shooter, Roger Runyon, took the stand. And I'm just going to play the quick clip because I can't do it justice. Okay, all right. I'll meet you in hell, you son of a I'll find you one way or the other. He's so dramatic. Yes. Well, Roger's response, which I saw in a different on the core TV when you watch like the whole the trial whole thing, through, yeah. his response was very calm. Okay. And he said, quote, you're right. I will go to hell and you will see me there. End quote. Honestly, <laughs> go off king. Like, I'm listen, when ever is the shooter the rational one in a situation? 
to me, Roger Runyon seemed legit remorseful. Yeah, it seems like he he's a he's ashamed of his actions and he knows that they were wrong in hindsight. Yes. In a later interview, the judge stated that she believes Ron's outbursts were all about control. I don't disagree. Yeah. Because he obviously had control issues. But I do sort of wonder if it was part of an attempt to make it look like he was actually angry at the man who shot his ex-wife. Yeah. Like to try and make himself look like, I didn't do it and I can't believe they would do it, you know. They're framing me. Yeah. Excuse me. They're framing me. Um, Because it was weird when his old buddy Hugh Estes was on the stand, he even like smiled at him. Hey, good old friend kind of smile, especially when he was testifying to like how they first met and did they hang out back Mm -hmm. in the 1970s, that sort of thing. But in any case, like any largely circumstantial case, a lot of the individual testimonies were not enough to prove guilt. But when you add them all up, Mm -hmm. there's really no other answer. All When all the signs and all of these people are saying the same thing. Basically, there's two other witnesses I'd like to highlight. All right. Because I think they really helped the state show Ron's motive. And that is Janet Tangway or Tangway. Okay. She was an insurance agent for the company where Ron conveniently had a million-dollar life insurance policy on Heather. Oh, Lord. And the second was Debbie Love, Ron's second wife. He remarried? He remarried. And get this. Debbie met Ron at his divorce attorney's office as she was an assistant or receptionist there. That is not where you meet men. That's right. The man moved on with his divorce attorney's assistant. Crazy. Girl, you're making us look bad. (laughs) I know. Not that we didn't... I haven't worked in family law. No, we don't work. But like... Just knowing the level of professionalism that you're supposed to keep in the legal field and to think, like, why would you ever... Listen, I mean, a lot of law firms are like rock and roll, man. It's, it's, <laughs> you hear some stories. That's true. Yeah. But that's wild to me that you would take up with a man who had such an ugly divorce. Oh, yeah. I would be terrified of that. But as we've learned, he is extremely coercive with people Mm -hmm. like he can talk a big game apparently and so who knows maybe he was just persistent with her as well but i think the mere mention of the insurance policy speaks for itself yeah i think it's good but debbie who had divorced ron while he was in lockup in mexico testified to just how he always talked about Heather. She corroborated every other testimony in the trial that Ron would do nothing but call Heather horrible names, make accusations against her, and in the time leading up to the shooting, make claims that she just needs to die. Oh my gosh. 
Well, and that's horrible to hear that as his current wife. And you're like, well, what happens if we divorce? Exactly. Ron's defense mainly relied on attempting to discredit his co-conspirators due to their lifestyles and addictions. Yeah. Against his attorney's advice, Ron took the stand. Oh, of course he did. I'm yes. not even shocked. As you can imagine, he's not really a likable guy. No. He's arrogant, pushy, intimidating, all of which worked well for him out in the world, mm-hmm. but not qualities you want when testifying in your own murder trial. Oh, my God. Sorry. Attempted murder trial. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. So during his testimony, he admitted to being shady during his divorce from Heather, and he admitted to refusing to pay child support, but he denied having any part of the shooting. All right. And the jury said, we don't believe you. <laughs> I Like, obviously. Basically. <laughs> The jury convicted Ron of attempted first murder, sorry, attempted first degree murder with a firearm of Heather, attempted second degree murder with a firearm of John, which was the lesser included offense, guilty of shooting into an occupied vehicle. They found him guilty on three counts of the solicitation to commit first degree murder. Guilty on conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. And guilty on committing a felony causing bodily injury. He was acquitted of just the one solicitation charge. Okay. So, at the sentencing hearing, Heather asked the judge to sentence Ron to life so she and her children could live in peace knowing they'd be safe. I think that's fair. Here is what Ron had to say to the judge. Oh, I don't want to hear it. I'm sorry that Heather has such bitterness in her heart. And irrespective of the decision of the, the jury, for the sake of my three children, I'd still like them to know, Ronnie, Joe, and Lauren, that this is not something that I did. For the sake of my three children who want nothing to do with me and change their last names. I'm sorry that she has bitterness in her heart because I stole her life and made her quadriplegic. Yes. Why does he talk so weird? Because he's from Brooklyn, New York. No, but he doesn't talk like a normal person from Brooklyn. Well, because he's from Brooklyn, but then he moved down here in like the 1970s. So his accent. It's like slightly weird. Yeah. It's not right. Yeah. From the back, he kind of looks like um, if, like, I lost his name, Nathan Fillion, and, like, he got hit by a truck. <laughs> what? I don't know why. That's the vibe I'm getting. <laughs> Poor Nathan Fillion. I said if he got hit by a truck, Nathan yeah. Fillion's an attractive man. He is. He's cute. He's got, like, that mischievous, like, boyish, <laughs> mischievous yeah. kind of look to him. I like Nathan Fillion. I do, too. What was he in that was so good? What I used to watch show? Castle. Castle. Yeah. yeah. I liked him in Castle. I liked, I liked him in Castle, too. Anyway. <laughs> moving on. We really need to start, like, a pop culture We <laughs> do. Podcast. We do. We do. I would love to one day. Anywho. Um, the judge sentenced him to life in prison for the attempted murder of Heather. 
And I'm just going to say more than 100 years to be served consecutively for the other counts. Now, yeah, the just... reason that I say a hundred more than 100 is because for some reason in all of my sources that were like journalistic things, yeah. it all said more than 120 or about 120 years. But then when I'm looking at the appeal and I added up yeah. all the years for each count, I'm like, mm, the math's not mathing. <laughs> Somebody can't use a calculator. Somebody's, and then nobody checked them. Somebody's wrong. I don't know. So I'm just going to say it doesn't matter. It's more he got life and then a, over 100 years on top of life. The so man is dying in jail. The man is. Yeah. She also ordered him to pay restitution, including over $30,000 to cover Heather's medical insurance premiums from 2004 to 2007. So basically from the time of her yeah. divorce from John until the time of the trial. All right. That's fair. Now, of course, you know what comes next. The appeal. The appeal. As far as I can tell, I just found one appeal in 2009. There really wasn't much to it. He basically just claimed two errors. The first error was that the trial courts messed up in denying a juror challenge. Okay. One juror selected for the trial had admitted to hearing about the shooting at her work as a hairstylist and then seeing a couple news articles about it at the time of the shooting. But the trial like 10 years after. Yes, but the trial's happening nine plus years after. So they questioned her, and she affirmed that she did not truly remember all of what she heard. Yeah, she, she hadn't really hearing about it. Yeah, she hadn't really formed an opinion on the matter. The defense, of course, challenged it, and the trial court denied. The appellate court affirmed the trial court's decision, stating that the juror made it clear that she had little to no recollection. Yeah. And she had heard it years before. So the second error Ron claimed in the appeal was the admittance of evidence of other crimes, wrongs, and acts, citing the prejudice outweighed the probative values. We've covered this before. I know we have. It is just what it sounds like. They're saying, well, that makes me look like a bad dude. <laughs> uh, yeah. Versus it's the judgment of like, how much does it make you look like a bad guy versus how much do we need this information to prosecute you? Yeah. Like, does it, is it, yeah. And the appellate court said, no, no. They upheld the trial court's decision explaining that similar fact evidence of crimes, wrongs, or acts is admissible when it is relevant in proving a material fact, including motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, etc. Yep. Ron is still serving his sentence, while Heather has defied all odds. Yes, she has. So, not just with staying alive at the time, but Heather was given an estimate of just seven years to live based on her level of quadriplegia. She is still alive after nearly 26 years. 
Yeah, because she's a badass. She's a baddie. Perhaps it's her children that has kept her life going or her life's mission of advocating for domestic violence victims through all these years. Either way, she has established herself as a hero to many. Much of Heather's focus currently must be on self-care. Eventually, Heather's father took over the financial responsibility of her health care. And for many years, it was possible with their long-standing family business. Okay. Unfortunately, her parents are in their, were in their 80s yeah. at this point, um, and her father has passed away. Mm-hmm. And with that, they had to close the business. Her mother, who was like I said, in her 80s, is still caring for Heather in their home, but they're working tireless, tirelessly, can't say that word, mm-hmm. to raise the necessary $9,600 a month for medical supplies and care. Oh, my gosh. So I have some links in our show notes. Savannah might add them on our social media or link tree. I will as in well. our link tree. They'll be up for about a month after the episode. So if you're okay. listening to this after an, after a month, check in the show notes. Cool. So the first link that I want to mention is to Heather's website. It's friendsofheathergrossman.com. You can read a little like blurb or summary of her story. You can see all her a lot of her advocate work. Um she has some resources on there for domestic violence, etc. The other two links, one is to a GoFundMe page that has been started to try and raise money for her medical care currently. Mm-hmm. It's new. And the other is a link to Amazon where you can purchase her book if you don't want to, oh. you know, don't feel comfortable donating or whatever. Yeah. But you'd like to help out while at the same time getting to hear this whole story from her perspective personally. She did write a book on it. Nice. And so there's a link to that as well. Well, thank you for bringing it to us. You did a great job. Thank you. I tried it. There was a lot to that case. Ooh, there's a lot to that trial. It seems like a beast and just his behavior alone. Yeah, he is something. He's a piece of work for sure. If you made it all the way to the end of this episode, leave us a little like angel emoji or the little smiley face with a halo because we're so lucky that Heather's been able to, you know, do all this advocacy work and she's our little angel. (laughs) He said that so... Angel. Yep. She is. Yes, absolutely. We wish her the best. And I hope that our little corner of the internet and our listeners can help her. Yeah, send her some love. So. All right, you guys. Well, we will talk to you next week. And in the meantime, have a good one. Thanks for listening. Bye. Till next time. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at Burden of Proof Pod and email us at burdenofproofpod at gmail.com.